The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. There's a sutta or discourse in the middle length connection called the Noble Quest, the Arya Aryasana. is a frame for 
if we're troubled by something, let's use the Pali word dukkha, which currently I translate as distress, suffering, distress, uh, life that's off track, if we're troubled by distress and dukkha, but end up pursuing stuff that is subject to more dukkha. And in the Buddha's time, a primary way of talking about dukkha was birth, aging, uh, loss, violence, illness, death, and a few other words sometimes get put in. It doesn't make sense. And so we, we want out of something, and yet we pursue the way out by seeking that which is just going to perpetuate. And so it's kind of, a, you know, one of those little gerbil wheels. Even if we're very sincere and dedicated. This has been a theme that I've been uh, pondering for a large chunk of this year, using it to keep reviewing what goes on in my life, how I use my time and energy, and what, what am I pursuing? You know, I can give you my official Dharma teacher version. You know, the kind of stuff you say that look good when you're up on the Dharma seat. But there's also, and not like I'm a total charlatan or anything, I hope. But, but then there's some other stuff going on that's, oh, might not be so noble. It's not particularly dastardly. I'm a, Although I live in America, and that comes with a lot of baggage, which for me is a lot of the dukkha these days. But, uh, but still, there's these things that when I look, uh, maybe not the noble pursuits that I've officially signed up for. So I'm, I'm, um, inquiring into this when I'm not distracted by being busy or some of the other stuff that I do. So I'm going to explore um, a piece of this noble quest tonight. I'd like to observe if um, it's my own perspective could check out how accurate it might be. There's something in the noble, the Buddha's quest, or properly the Buddha to be's quest. The term was bodhisattva, the awakening being. And so before the awakening, properly in early Buddhism, we don't speak of the Buddha. So the Buddha appeared with the awakening. Previous to that, we use the term bodhisattva, the awakening being, or I like to use the phrase the Buddha to be. 
there's something about the Buddha to me's quest that I think is universal. I don't know this. There's no, you know, I'm not a practicing Muslim, for example, so I think it's, it's, no one can say, you know, all paths lead to the same place. It's a nice, new agey idea. I kind of believe it, but I, I don't know. But so it's a belief that there's something about the Buddha's quest, and I like to think, again, I can't prove it, but I like to think that in all human beings, perhaps all life, this quest is operating. And at the same time, this is phrased in the terms and concepts of the Buddha's time and place. So tonight that will be important to, there's something universal in this and it happens in a particular context. That is the lower Himalayas, what's part of Nepal now, and the Ganges Valley and the culture of that kind of place. Which, by the way, is not accurately accurately described in most Buddhist stories, because those were based on um, later culture in that place, not actually what was probably going on in the Buddhist time. But that's a whole other talk. So there's this universal quest, I think, and it's expressed in the language of the Buddhist times, i.e. dukkha, and the escape from dukkha. And dukkha is often expressed in terms of birth, aging, and death, often illness is included, and sometimes loss, and in other contexts, violence comes in. And sometimes words like defilement and corruption. That's all the dukkha side of things, the, the distressful side of things. So that's the phrasing of that time and place. I still find it meaningful, but it's, I, I hope we're all aware this is a fairly different time and place, although we're still born, age, it's a experience loss and and die. And there's still a huge disturbing amount of violence in the human world. So what do we today uh, who are to some degree are heirs of the Buddha's quest, make, make of his language and his quest. Some of us here tonight may not identify as Buddhists, but if we're in a place like this, doing some form of mindfulness, meditation, Well, I want to be careful.
careful. Some forms of mindfulness meditation are being co-opted by Google and the Marine, so I'm a little wary of that. But if it's, you know, one of the more better pedigree versions of mindfulness, such as taught here, and insight meditation practices along with metta and other things, then to that degree we're heirs of the Buddha. The more we study the teachings, take on other aspects of Buddhist practice that were increasingly heirs to the Buddha. And to that extent, we inherit the universal part of the quest. Although I would say just by being human, we, we inherit it. So a question I ask is, I ask of myself, and those who study with me is, okay, we're, we're heirs to the Buddha's quest and the Buddha's, the awakening that grew out of that. How fully have we taken on this quest? And how, how deeply have we made it our own? How deeply have we digested it, assimilated it, and made it the guiding influence in our lives? To me, this is a daily question because I still catch tendencies to distract I now live a mile from my internet connection, which has really helped in cutting down distraction. But still, I find I find ways to distract or just bench out and so on. So I ask this question daily, and the current form is uh, to pick up a question that the Buddha, to me, explored. And the short version of this question, a little later I'll give you a longer version of it, is what is the escape from dukkha? What is the escape from the dukkha that's exemplified by birth, aging, sickness, loss, corruption, violence, and death. Sometimes in Thailand, escape is translated as skillful escape because now, you know, Buddhists are accused of being escapists, and so some people are uncomfortable with the word, but it's it's, as far as I know, the legit translation. Something has moved us to get involved in the practices we're doing and the study of the Buddha's Dhamma. And the framework from the Buddha's time to describe that is Dukkha. 
sunk distress has brought us to this. And whether we phrase it as escape from dukkha, it seems to me that that's, that's the aim. It makes sense if one is disturbed by distress, we would like to find a solution. If you prefer that to the word escape. So that's that's a phrase that was current, it seems, in the Bodhisattvas, Bodhisattvas, Sattvas, Pali, or Sanskrit Sattva, Pali, um, in that time, 2,500 years ago, more or less. And this phrasing has a context and background. I'm not a scholar of these things, but from a little bit of reading of what are scholars of what are called the Vedas, a, a dominant perspective of that time that clearly influenced the Buddha to be, though not, not necessarily the Buddha, and I'll get to that later tonight, but the a major perspective of that time is each of us is fundamentally an Atman. Fundamentally, there is some unchanging essence that is our core. And if you want to know the details of the the Brahmin beliefs about this, there are books to go into it. I don't believe it, so I'm, I'm not a good one to try to describe it. But there's a belief, what's relevant to tonight's talk, there's the belief, and this was philosophically developed in 100, 200 years before the Buddha Tani, that fundamentally, at our core, there is an unchanging essence called Atman. And there are other names for it, the Purusha, the person. The seer is another one. And that the Atman takes on bodies, that is, reincarnates. And after death, triumphs, migrates, and reincarnates in another body. And this goes on and on and on. And so these Atmans keep getting trapped in bodies. And by the way, some of those bodies exist on you know, astral planes, and it's not a physical body, like the kind of things we all around. But by embodying, reincarnating, then there's the Atmans once again get entangled in birth, aging, illness, corruption, loss, death. So Atmans go off and uh, fall in love, get married, have kids, have farms, or open a business. Back in the Buddhist time, they might be a craftsman, or a Brahmin priest, or a uh, 
shade or wandering hermit off in the woods. But too often they're pursuing things, to use the terminology of the time, gold and silver. Um, wife and children, servants. Um, I mentioned cattle was a big meeting and so on. All of which are subject to birth, aging, illness, death. And so, just staying caught up in stuff that's subject to distrust. And it seemed the Buddha to me accepted this framework. And that this was his starting point in when he entered on the wandering quest style of life, what were called samana at that time, this was the framework he started with. And then he saw various teachers, tried out various practices, and he came to the conclusion they didn't work. So the summary is, in his time and place, there was this belief that there's this atom that is our essential core that keeps getting trapped in bodies, birth, aging, illness, and death. And some theories have been proposed what to do about it, and they don't work was his conclusion. And this then leads to what I now call the Buddha's big question, though it's properly the Bodhisattva's big question. There's a discourse called the Nagara Sutta, the city, where the Buddha, sometime much later, after the awakening, talks about weeks, probably, at most a few months, before the awakening. So this is after he had given up his heavy-duty ascetic pursuits and decided to eat decently again, to bathe, and he found a pleasant place beside the Narajara River near what's now Bodhaya in India. And he started to try to approach. And much later he recorded this. Friends, before awakening, before I had fully awakened, while still a bodhisattva, this question occurred to me. Beings in this world experience hardship due to being born, aging, dying, passing away, and arising, or reappearing. When they are ignorant of the skillful escape, skillful means of escape from dukkha, as exemplified by aging and death, how will an escape from dukkha ever happen? 
I find a few very important and interesting things in this. So one, which I've already brought up, we keep, I think he's basically saying we keep struggling with Dukkha while we don't know the way out. So how are we ever going to find our way out? I think that's um, a good frame of the human dilemma. There's a lot in our lives that trouble us, and we struggle with it, and we don't know the way out. And he uses the word ignorance of the skillful means of escape. We have lots of escapes. But he wanted the skillful one, the noble one that actually worked. Something here that's not quite explicit is, to some degree, he's copying to his own ignorance. There's a tendency in later Buddhism to turn the bodhisattva into, you know, a super a spiritual superhero. And in uh, the kind of devotionalism that goes along with that, or the, you know, we got the Buddha, we got the best teaching, or whatever. I think we overlook that there's the, the more difficult story of really grappling with the human dilemma and copying to Ignorance. We're groping for an escape, but we're ignorant of what it is. So and he had concluded that everything on offer in his part of the world at that time didn't work. And so how does how does he proceed? This to me is crucial if, if, if we also grapple with similar dilemmas. Here's how he proceeded after accepting, okay, we all want out of this dilemma, nobody knows how. Friends, the question then occurred to me, what is there such that there is aging and death? With what as condition is there aging and death? Rather than concoct a new theory, okay, that's a bit of work, here's my new theory, here's my new answer. He didn't just leap into another answer to grab onto. To me, this is um, a great piece of wisdom because so often, you know, we're trying to grab at some answer. Give me the right practice. This is kind of the obsession in American Buddhism. Tell me how to do it right. There's a lot to unpack in that. Um, you know, 
in a way, it's, you know, give me the answer and I'll just do it and then it'll be all okay, right? Or at least I'll be a good whatever. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Here, instead of proposing or grasping at another answer, he asks a question. So in that context, dukkha is associated with aging and death, or aging and death are very vivid and major example of, of dukkha. When I was much younger, I didn't quite get that, but with every passing year and the death of more and more people, I know things like typhoons and drug strikes and inner city violence and rural violence. This sinks in more and more and more the Duga of aging and death. So he takes that instead of proposing an escape, he, he asks, what is there such that there is aging and death? What is the necessary condition for aging and death? What makes aging and death possible? And he pondered that and came up with an answer, which is birth. But I'm not going to dwell on answers right now because he immediately proposed another question. Okay, aging and death happens because of birth, but what is there such that there is birth? What's the necessary basis for birth to occur? And he, he came up with becoming or being existence. The Pali word is bhava, which means being existence, becoming. But he didn't take that as the solution. He, he answered, well, what's the basis of that? Clinging, what's the basis of that? Craving, what's the basis of that? Feeling, contact, and so on. If you've studied the dependent core rising teaching, this follows that, that um, formula. Now, I've come to wonder, maybe back then, you didn't get the full official dependent core rising formula. And so what I've been focusing on is not the details that, okay, aging and death depends on birth, which depends on becoming, because maybe that got worked out later. But what's more central, I think, to this is aging and death happens because of something which happens because of something, which happens because of something, which happens because of something. And he kept looking into things, and everything he looked into was conditioned by something else. And this is where the radical insight, I think, came from. The context of his time believed in Atmans, fixed entities that don't change. 
by asking, you know, notice in his questions, there's nothing about where is the Atman, what is the nature of the Atman, or the self, or the soul. There was no metaphysical, you know, what is the nature of this? What should the Atman do? Where does the Atman go? There weren't, he, he didn't indulge those speculations. He, but there's this dukkha that he was grappling with as exemplified by aging and death. Okay, how does that come to be? What makes that possible? He kept looking and looking and looking. And in the words of um, one scholar, maybe others as well, as he kept looking into this, there was a shift in perspective. One that seems powerfully radical to me. The way of looking at life in terms of atmans that reincarnated bodies and that, that goes on and on believes in things that don't change. The atman, at least, is supposed to not change in most versions. There were debates about the notion of the atman. Not Buddhist debates, but others. The assumption was there are these Atmans that don't change. If we examine a lot of our behavior, especially what might be called ignoble quests, or at least distracting pursuits, we're usually looking for something. And our perceptions tend to be of a world filled with things. And we tend to perceive things as separate, as individual. And we often don't see or disregard or ignore how much each thing is connected to other things. I think, I think just the way evolution did it, we perceive individual things that had great survival value, and then we came to see ourselves as individual things. And then eventually people ask, well, what part of us is the real part? one corner of the world they call that Atman. So there's a way of seeing life as things. And things that are more or less separate, more or less lasting, we might debate, some last, some don't. But often in our pursuits, we're pursuing something as if it's going to last. You know, if I just get that New job, new this, new car, new, new relationship, new meditation practice, new jhana, new insight. You know, then I've got it. You know, to get it and have it, it's got to be something that lasts. And there's got to be a you that's going to last to have it. And how much of our thinking and behavior 
anger is permeated by this. Now, the people in the Bodhisattva's time had thought carefully about some of this, so they believe a lot of things are just passing, don't last, and they're not going to satisfy our quest. But they still posited some things that do last. Our culture has, you know, eternal souls and life after death, some eternal heavenly place, or the alternative that people don't believe in so much because we're Americans, we're good people, we're not going to hell. <laughs> anyway, back to this inquiry, question after question, it seems that somewhere in that the perspective shifted to a deeper and deeper, more radical seeing that what appear to me things aren't. They don't have enough thingness to be what we seek or want. That's a bummer. Because we've been investing a lot in certain things, including, you know, meditative experiences and insights and going on retreat, having a beautiful experience, all of which is valuable, but we turn them into things. And then we turn ourselves into the possessor, owner, haver of things that were born. And, you know, we're back into caught up in birth, aging, illness, and death, and so on. Oops, I just jumped ahead and left out part of what I wanted to talk about, so I'll come back to where I just was a little later. So the Buddha was questioning, and it, the Buddha to me was questioning, and it led him out of the dominant beliefs, assumptions of his time, the dominant spiritual paradigm and answer started to fall apart for him. But he was still largely using terminology of that time. Now I'd like to, um, after talking about what I call the Bodhisattva's big question, I'd like to ask, um, what's our big question? First, individually, and probably for tonight, we'll leave it at the individual level. I have doubts that our culture anymore has any shared big question. We're way too fragmented, probably. Does the Bodhisattva's big question what is the escape from birth, aging, illness, and death? Does that move us? Does that light a fire on 
under our practice? Is that something we wake up with and come back to? If not, then what is our big question? In this culture, this society, a world of climate change, of NSA basically having access to anything that's become information about us, what what is our big question? And you know, there's the stuff where all like climate change that's going on for all of us, and then each of us has the particular circumstances and details of our lives. So I, I'd like to pose to you what what is your big question? Some of the questions that drive us or move us might be spoken. We may have thought about them. We may have picked them up from a source such as the Buddha. But often the questions that drive us are unspoken, maybe not very well examined, and therefore not very well articulated. If we go back to the quests and pursuits that aren't so noble, um, but updating a little bit, is our fundamental question about security. For some of us, healthcare, health insurance is for how we're going to finance retirement. These are big questions. They're ones I face as well. But how are we going to manage um, health insurance or health care and retirement and all that? Is that the big question? Or is it a question that is still caught up in that which is subject to aging, corruption, death, and the like. Are we seeking comfort? I know I, I have a strong hold towards comfort, convenience. Is, is how to be more comfortable. How to feel good about myself. I'm not saying it's a bad question, by the way. But is it, is it a big question that can really lead, lead our lives? What kind of stuff do I think? That might be some of the less spoken. We may not always want to cop to it. Or at least, you know, I was a monk for many years, so I don't even I'm not supposed to want a lot of stuff. Doesn't mean I don't. <laughs> I certain stuff. 
or knowledge, even acquiring knowledge. What do I need to know? So whether articulated and spoken or inarticulated and maybe somewhat murky, what are the questions we ask of life and ourselves, or even of meditation? And what are, what are we pursuing with those questions? Do these questions, whatever they may be, and it's possible it's going to take some digging around to get more clarity. I've been digging with this for a while. Do our questions have the have adequate depth and power, like comfort? Uh, in myself, at least, once I'm comfortable, the motivation, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying, well, I'll skip the tangent on that, but once I'm comfortable, I tend to just indulge in the comfort. And so making that a, a major pursuit doesn't seem to me to have much spiritual mileage, the way the Buddha's question did for him. Some people I've talked with about this have phrased their question in terms of compassion or love. That's that's been at the core of the teaching that followed from. 
what are our questions and how much staying power, how much do they move us, how consistently, how deep do they go. I'd like to conclude by coming back to the shift in perspective that I started to mention a while ago. By inquiring into the things called aging and death, by asking, well, how do those happen? How will that, and how does that happen? That and that and that. There's a shift from seeing things that kind of exist sort of by themselves to seeing, you can still call them things because our language is limited. The Pali word is dhammas, which can be translated as things or phenomena. There are these phenomena that are conditioned. So another term is translated by conditioned things. Rather than separate individual things, there are conditioned things. But if we look into conditioned things, maybe even drop the word thing, and the shift is to see processes. That's a modern word. A word from a pre-modern word, though, would be streams. Instead of seeing things, there are streams. And in these streams, there's as much influence and relation, relation relating, influencing and relating, as there are any separate or fixed things. I mean, this is a radical change because we're so used to remembering ourselves and others and things in our lives. You know, they were like this yesterday, or so-and-so was like blah, blah, blah last week, last month, last year. It's just a default that there are these things that are more or less the same. Yeah, we know they change, but we keep assuming something that stays the same, which are, in the Buddhist time, atmas, essences that don't change. And the shift in perspective was that the thingness of phenomena softened and became so transparent that what stood out was that their processes or streams of what the Buddha eventually called dependent co-arisen phenomena. Streams of dependent co-arisen phenomena. Or some, some translators use the term dependently originated phenomena. So the questions, it seems to me, never led to an answer. And this to me is brilliant because much of Buddhist history has been about, okay, now we've got the Buddha's answer. He was brilliant. And we got the answer and now, you know, sometimes that's people are very content to have that answer. In others, it's more, well, no, we've got his method. 
But I think um, now if, if we pick up some answers and hold them very loosely, that might not be a problem and methods can be very valuable. But I think what we're aiming for is not an answer or even uh, a solution. But by inquiring the way the Bodhisattva did a shift. And of course, some of that inquiry happens in meditation, if, if that's how we meditate. But there has to be this noble quest, this looking. Well, this is because of this, and this is because of that, and to keep examining this until there's a shift that rather than fixed things, a fixed me doing this or experiencing this, that both the seen and the seer start to soften and become transparent and what what are what are seen are flows or streams of phenomena that arise out of each other. And there's no fixed point or essence to any of that. That can be scary for some because we want to believe there's some core essence. And some religions and spiritual teachings um, teach that with great fervor. But that's, that's not what the Buddha's story is about. And so his question that was earlier phrased in terms of escape from Dukkha, I prefer to speak of freedom from Dukkha, freedom from all the stuff that's encumbered by birth, aging, corruption, violence, and death. That by seeing all this, our streams of dependent co-arising, that may look like things, and there may be kind of a very provisional, conventional ownership in a very passing, insecure way. then the problem or dilemma of what is the escape, because the old assumption is, boils down to, what's my escape or my Atman's escape? But in this shift in seeing, there's nobody left to be born, to age, to die. There's nobody to escape. And that seems to me the, could call it an answer, but I think that becomes a trap. Because it's not in having the answer. It's not like you know, Buddhism is a cheat sheet that's going to give you the answer and now you can go pass your test. It's, and it's not just the methods, 
it's the methods with the right square spirit animated by a quest and the question. So I may have jumped the gun a bit and slipped in some of what many Buddhists, including myself, take to be the answer. But I hope that doesn't distract from our own quest and finding the powerful question that can keep us looking in a way that the shift in seeing can occur. So that concludes my prepared uh, reflections. We have about a half an hour to go to the So I'm prepared to take questions, but I'd like also to hear if, if you've got inklings about what your big questions might be. Not the, you know, they're the ordinary questions like, My wife and I are waiting for the uh, website about health, whatever, dot gov to work so we can explore a few things on that. So, so that's an important question, but what, what, what are the big questions? Because even if they fix it and I get some good health insurance, um, and I've already got good insurance, but it may not last, so. But um, that's not going to solve the big dilemma. So, floor is open. Yes? The first thing that comes to mind is, you know, what's the purpose of me in my life? I don't know this answers to what you're talking about, but I mean, I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's a question of comfort. I mean, if I have some answer to that, a lot of these other things place. Mm -hmm. The issue of security, comfort in that is less of an issue if I have
of the things, the questions I have is how do I become an instrument for the escape? How do I help others, myself? So then you're still, you're still interested in the Buddhist framework of escape, liberation from Dukkha. And not just for your own sake. The, 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 I mean, the psychologist, the word escape is just a double thing. Because the escape is our first motivation. It's motivation of the ego. It is uh, from, from all, all life escapes. From what it touches, what it's distressing. I'm, I'm 
believing that, yes, to, to articulate if it's grounded in self-awareness and practice and not just some theory we found somewhere. But if coming out of practice and reflecting on our practice, you know, using our cognitive intellectual abilities to think about practice as well, then finding an appropriate amount of articulation to clarify for ourselves what we're doing, why, is it actually moving in the direction we seek? So maybe we're operating on instinct or a hunch, or it feels right, but those those can be um, led astray. I'm not saying they are, but they can. And so to, to keep looking and reflecting and examining is part of practice. But that will happen at each person's own speed. So I, I'm not saying you have to make articulating this your priority and put everything else aside. That that would probably be disastrous. But it's I'm saying this is part of the mix. Thank you. Uh, my question is for you. Is uh, so what did the Buddha say? So I don't think I didn't find it as clear. So, and I mean, the the common phrasing would be the noble eightfold path or the middle way, which is in the framework of the four ennobling realities, or so-called noble truths. There's dukkha, origin dukkha, end of dukkha, or quenching dukkha, and then the path of practice leading to the quenching of dukkha. That, and then that's usually parsed as the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, can I ask that or add to the question a little bit? Um, so, I've been taking notes, and I was just wondering, um, you know, finding what we were found um, when he was meditating um, was a lot of, I thought it was a lot of nothing, you know, like uh, things, um, conceptual things, but nothingness, and then there's something or some sort of But you brought up another word tonight that I hadn't heard before, which was you know, the essence um, that um, and I, I'm trying to figure out is the essence of the soul? Or is he actually was there another word for the soul? No, he his time believed in those essences. He did. So his teaching was on Atman. Atman is a Sanskrit word. So Atman is that there is some essential core that's that lasts or 
illusion in seeing everything as streams. That in everything we experience, no Atman can become. So, no essential, unchanging core can become. And another name, the standard term for that is Anatta in the Pali language, not self. All this stuff is not self. And it's also spoken of as emptiness. Nothingness in Buddhist teachings has a different meaning. It's kind of a nihilism. So in Buddhist terms, there's all this, but it's empty of essence. Even up here. Trying to fix it traps it. 
stagnant. That's at least how I read these things. Yes? You know, I, I didn't like that escape idea at all. And I don't know, sorry, I would say language is such a trap all the way. And I was thinking, okay, what's the question? Well, the question is escape. The question is optimal participation. So I don't maybe I've got some error in my process here, but to me, like Buffer Circle said, I seem to be a verb. And a verb is not a thing or a permanent or anything else. And I think that's our language problem is we're trying to think if there's an essence or a soul and all that stuff, when it's, it's the wrong question. Yeah, I mean, personally, it, it works for me that shifting away from nouns to more verbs. And English is a noun-heavy language, I've read. And the word process seems to be a word in English that gets us out of that noun business. It helps, but we've got to keep seeing it, too, not just talking it. And I think it's good to recognize when a word like escape can have connotations we're uncomfortable with. But as the gentleman pointed out, we still spend a lot of time escaping. And the problem isn't the word. Although I know I, I waste a lot of time reacting to certain words that I've judged in some way. So I, I don't want to start, you know, blaming the word thing. That's our problem. We've got things and nouns, so I'm not going to use those words anymore. Yes. And then... Instead of, okay, there's this 
aging process, and here's a piece of it, a sign of it. But to see it okay, accept it as process of life. And that's, you know, we want to be alive and not age. Well, sorry, it's just not how it works. And so, so there's also, I think, some shift in seeing these things not as a problem where we sort of separate it out there, and then we can try to avoid it, escape it. It's not if you're 
define it by the past relationship yeah. and past identities like daughter, mother. Then I want to go back and show the question a little bit. So, God is beautiful now, and he not self like contradicts himself. Without a soul, why would you choose to do so? Because, so I think in that case, it's like, why would I want to get to a place if I didn't have, so why would I need to go to a non self and have a soul? That's kind of how I think my brain is kind of looking for all of that. So, and then uh, part B would be is that in Buddhist practice, what would be um, the closest thing to what the Tibet the soul is for? Specifically, how the Buddha would explain that or give language to that. Okay. Um, I would not say that being in the now is the goal. And being not-self is not the goal, because if we make them goals, I think it doesn't work. Now, being present to what's going on now is, it's an, in, that's actually not a Buddhist teaching, it's a pop Buddhist teaching in North America. Um, that comes as much from the transcendentalists and the, um, there's a, a monk in San Diego, Tanisaro, who's written a very good article on Buddhist romanticism, and another one I forget the title on. A lot of the um, kind of Emersonian transcendental ideas that have been incorporated in Buddhism when they don't actually fit that well. So, being present to what's going on with our bodies, feelings, thoughts, is important to be able to inquire what's going on. But the word mindfulness, it's often left out that mindfulness can be about the past. Mindfulness is to bring something to mind. And so, when we're doing certain mindfulness practices, we're taking the breath or what, what's happening right now. But in other practices, mindfulness, like in metta, loving-kindness practice, we use memory, imagination, thought to evoke loving-kindness. So we bring it to mind. And that can use memory. So. So, being in the present has an important role, but it's, it's not the goal. And <clears throat> not-self is a concept. And what I was trying to get at tonight, at least at the end, is the Bodhisattva's quest became not looking for the answer that was figured out but the kind of radical inquiry that led to a shift in how he saw experience. And so, 
I'm, I'm personally have been fascinated by the not-self teaching for a long time now. How many years is it? 30, maybe 32. But, you know, so I'm familiar with it intellectually, but that's not really the point. It's not like we're going to get the answer, and once we've got the answer, then we're going to get to it somehow. It's more about the process, the, the journey. So I think it's good enough just to know, okay, the Buddha talked about not-self, which means the word atta, that's translated self, means a separate individual entity that has agency and control. That's a little bit philosophically worked out beyond what he actually said, but the way he talked about it, not-self means you can't find anything that doesn't change. You can't find anything that has absolute power over itself or other things, and so on. So we can come at it intellectually, but it's really about the inquiry into dukkha or some other big question. That inquiry that leads us to see, oh, it's processes rather than fixed, separate things. And your second question was about soul. I don't know because I don't know what the hell the word means. <laughs> so, I live in a country where people talk about God, soul, and heaven, and most people cannot give any clear expression what those words mean. I know God exists. Okay, what is God? The Creator. Tell me more. They can't. And soul, people assume there's a soul. What does it mean? To come back to articulation, some of these important terms, we need to have some clarity what the hell we're talking about, or we're just kind of flailing around. So, first you have to say what soul means for me to link it up with Buddhist teaching. First step and could be and I thought about this would be like um like loving energy. That's kind of um that's like struggling Well Buddhism would Buddhism talks about compassion and metta, kindness, friendliness. But it doesn't call it the Soul, kind of. It doesn't frame it as this. Buddhism wouldn't say compassion is going to go to heaven for eternity. But compassion is a powerful part of the journey. And in this perspective, anything, insight, wisdom, mindfulness, none of these operate as the answer. 
the Buddhist, the serious, you know, explored Buddhist perspective is there are all these factors working together. And within that, there's learning, there's, there's compassion, there's dedication, there's effort, there's humility. But none of these are fixed. It's a shifting terrain. But these things, there's a bunch of factors that tend to reinforce each other. And a certain momentum develops. But nobody owns it. Nobody's controlling it. It can fall apart. And it can kind of pick up the pieces, can come back together, but it's always a new configuration. And the configuration is never static. It's a lot of words, but some of us like words. I do. One more. I'm on the same page with you as far as the soul. I think a lot of people use that as an abstract representation of everything that's supposed to be past like that. Some people call it heart, some people call it soul, some people call it heart and soul. I'd rather like that. I'm, I'm just, I'm not practicing Buddhist or anything like that. It's the first time I've done something like that. But I, uh, as far as a lot of faith, or you call it faith, uh, I really like that about that. I like the, I like that viewpoint on it. And as far as a question, um, I'm somewhat of a nerd, so this is going to be a little nerdy. But, uh, you know, with the Duke, you talk about aging as being part of that. It's like, you know, one of the big questions. And, you know,
comparison, aging and death to everything, a relationship, a phone call, a good meal. Every, every time you conceive of yourself, I'm blah, 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 there's a birth and an aging and death. And a powerful place to see this are in the more destructive emotions like fear, anger, greed, envy. You can see that process. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.